Thank you, Mel. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 5. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to have those. If you would pass them to the center aisle, we'll collect them. And this morning, I want to look at Ephesians 5 and 6. And we're calling our message today, The Gospel-Centered Family. And as we look at this, um, this text of Scripture, it really establishes a foundation pulling from so many things in God's Word. Have you ever noticed when you read the Bible how God is precise in what He says and in what He does? We find in the beginning pages of the Bible that God is a God of order and clarity. His creation is precise. His communication is not garbled. When he spoke, creation came into being. Things happened. And they took their place. And the progress report throughout Genesis 1 was, it is good. It is good. And on the sixth day, he said, it is very good. Psalm 19 captures this as, as, as it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. I, I've shared with you before, my Sundays, I have a routine on Sunday. I get up early. And this morning, as I put my feet on the floor, uh, it was like somebody was shining a Q-beam in my bedroom window, our bedroom window. And I thought, wow, what's going on out there? And I looked up and it was the moon just out there declaring what? The glory of God. And not only that, in Psalm 19, day to day pours out speech and night to night it reveals knowledge that life is sustained here, whether we want to receive it or not, by God's sustaining hand. The same precision, even with greater specificity, is seen in the law of God, the law of Moses, from the details of the tabernacle, where you read the measurements and the materials and God speaks to how he wants it made and how worship is to be conducted and with regard to the specifics of the sacrifices God is precise and careful in all that he does and even as we come to the New Testament and the gathering of the church it's in 1 Corinthians 14 where where Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the context of the church worshiping, that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, a God of order. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that when the church gathers, to remember that I'm writing to you to know how the household of God is to behave, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, the reason I begin this message in this way is because we live in a time of ever-increasing chaos regarding God's creative blueprint for the family, for marriage, for gender, for sexuality, and for the church. And what I'm hoping to do in these weeks between Mother's Day and Father's Day is to establish a, a clear word from God's word for you and for me to stand for Jesus Christ in our, our generation. We want to be faithful witnesses. And this is not a time for us to get our cues from the culture. This is not a, a time to be a people pleaser holding our finger in the wind. The purpose of this series over the next six weeks is to encourage and to equip this body to live as God's called out people in our generation. So... We need to hear about what marriage is, 
what's involved, what God has to say. He's not unclear about it, that it is between a man and a woman and is intended to be for a lifetime. We need to understand what God has to say about a family, which is the first institution he established. We need to understand what God has to say about gender. He's not garbled about that. He created man in his image, male and female in his image. We need to understand what God has to say about sexuality. It's not a a fuzzy message when we come to the Bible. It's actually quite clear. We need to understand what God has to say about roles between men and women in marriage and in the church. He's quite clear on that as well. And we have this ever-suppressing force that seeks to put aside clear biblical instruction. Let's let the Word do its work in our life for the next six weeks. Let's let it move in our life. And I think for some of you who may be waffling between two decisions, that you would remember Elijah on Mount Carmel who said, choose who you're going to serve. Or Joshua, choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to stand on his written word in a world that, in which everybody's doing right in their own eyes. So that's how I want to make my argument. And I want to hold up for you, for us, Ephesians 5 and 6. We'll look at other passages in the coming weeks. But this morning, I want us to look at Ephesians. Did I say Hebrews? I meant Ephesians. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Last week, I said Hebrews when I wanted you to go to Ephesians. And so Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Um, and I actually want to back up to verse 1 to kind of get a running start. And I want you to note, if you have an insert, this would be number one, we're called to be imitators of God as dear children. What a command. You know, just the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to uh, the Ephesians. Many scholars believe it was a circular letter. We know that Timothy was placed in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. We know that Ephesus was a spiritual war zone. Uh, Paul preached the gospel and brought the the idol-making industry to its knees. It was a, this is after all the book where Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. It was um, a serious challenge. And so in the typical Pauline fashion, the early chapters established the doctrinal foundation. And we read God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. We read verses like, uh, for by grace you are saved. Um, For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That we are created for God's workmanship to, to, to do good works. We are saved by grace for good works. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Our calling is in Jesus Christ. We're called to live sold out lives for him. And here in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God as dear children. The word is mimite. We get the word mimic not in a mocking way, but we're to, we're to want to be like our Father. We're wanting, wanting to be like our God. One of the great responsibilities that believers in Jesus Christ have is to live transformed lives before a lost and perishing world. 
We are called to be salt and light to the glories of our great God. And, and this ministry of salt and light is not always received. In fact, uh, sometimes the, wor- wor- the world expresses hatred through persecution. We're to be imitators of God as dear children, meaning we love Him. The life we live, we live because we love Him who, lo- who first loved us. And so in this command, we're called to imitate our great and gracious God. How is this possible? How are we able to imitate the sovereign God of the universe? Theologians often categorize God's attributes as those that are unique to himself and communicative, uh, and those that we share with him, communicative, uh, communicable rather. And so uh, God will always be unique, and we're not like him in the sense that he's self-existent. We, we had a point in time. Uh, he's eternal. We had a starting point. Um, however, we share attributes of God uh, similarly because we're created in His image and we, there's a longing within us, the conscience within us created in His image uh, desires justice and wisdom and holiness and uh, we, we, we can't exude that through God's grace. Um, when we think of these characteristics and virtues, God demonstrates them perfectly. We do not. We're sinners by nature and by choice and need the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. But the call that he gives to believers here is to be imitators of God as dear children. We should long to, to rightly represent our God and to live, live, live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So Paul here in Ephesians 5 talks about the walk of the believer. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, verse one of chapter four, we're not to walk like the Gentiles, chapter four, verse seven, 17. Uh, we're to, here in this passage, we're to walk in love, we're to walk um, in, in light, we're to walk in wisdom, and we're to walk in the spirit. And so as Paul is unpacking these, um, these, these clear commands, we're to walk in, in God's ways as we look at um, this passage and what it means to serve the Lord in our generation. So let's look secondly, we're called to walk in God's ways. We're to walk in God's ways. And this again is all building the foundation for what we're about to talk about concerning marriage and family and all of these other issues as we look at the culture at large. First, we're to walk in love. Verse two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So of all the things we want to get right, it's that. What does it matter if you have all the gifts in the world, but do not show his love? I find myself praying these days the fruit of the Spirit. Let's just keep it simple, shall we? So I've been praying just in recent days, I guess because I'm just so aware how often I don't walk in the Spirit as I should. Lord, may, may your love be seen in my life. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To walk in love means I'm to imitate the sacrificial expressions of Christ. 
He loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He did everything that pleased the Father. Christ giving himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God that was a fragrant aroma to him. It fulfilled its purpose in providing our redemption. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul spoke of their sacrificial gift. The fragrant aroma meant the sacrifice was pleasing and acceptable to God. Jesus gave it all. He gave himself completely. And this is, this is why you and I don't give ourselves in ministry sacrificially as we should. We're selfish. We need to be reminded to walk in love, to give freely. When I was in college, I used to listen to a radio program and it would end this way. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray rather to be stronger men and women. Don't pray for a task equal to your power, but power equal to the task. Then the doing of your work uh, will be no miracle, but you'll be the miracle, and you'll be constantly amazed at what you can do and become by yielding yourself to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. To walk in love. Notice secondly, to walk in light. To walk in light. He says uh, in this passage that we're to walk in light. Verse 8. For at one time you were, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the, world, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. It's hard to imagine a more timely and relevant passage than this. The need for you and I to walk in love, which, which doesn't put truth on its head. True love stands on the truth of God. Walk in light means to walk in truth. So it's, you know, this, this is relevant as we're talking about all of these matters before us. And we find that as, God, as God's called out people, we're to reflect the light of Jesus Christ in, a, in, this, in this darkness. So how does the darkness respond to the light of God's word? The darkness hates the light. Apart from the supernatural work of God, It'll never come to the light. So at one time you were in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so the Apostle Paul is writing about God's work of making spiritually alive uh, believers out of spiritually dead pagans. And so the spiritual life that God imparts to the believer is to be shown in the world. We're to put off darkness and to put on the light. Put off sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions wickedness that shouldn't be named among you. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So if we're going to walk in the light, that means we're taking in what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk in obedience, what it means to walk in the light. And immediately, he, he divides this really into two discussions, negative and positive. And here he mentions the negative, sexual immorality, the word is pornea. Just basically, whenever you see that in the Bible, it's all sexual expression outside of marriage. All sexual expression outside of marriage. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality in any sexual expression outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what he's talking about. 
And he goes on to say, but sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. It must not be named among you. Paul's prescription for a higher standard of living, in fact, a godly standard of living, is actually quite profound. It's what we think, it's how we think, and it's the way we act. We hear all around us today, don't we? Love is love. It doesn't matter what the relationship is. Love is love. More about that next week. But it matters not if it's between a man or a woman. This is used to shame any type of biblical standard at all. It's hard to express the devastation sexual sin brings to individuals, to society, to culture, and even in the church. Paul places this sin in first position, if only because it's so harmful. One man who loved to visit gravestones, I was reminded of just the danger all around us. Someone said that every hour in America is sex o'clock. And this one man who loved to visit gravestones of famous people boasted that he could type in the name of any famous person and hold his iPad in a certain way and it would direct him to the very grave through GPS and other know-how. But it's also true that if you type in some wrong website on your iPad or phone that it will also take you to the grave, won't it? And so how sexual sin can reach and destroy. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to honor marriage. It's not that there's not forgiveness. Nobody would be in this room if there weren't for, for, for God's forgiveness, God's grace. But what did Jesus say to the woman taken in adultery? Go and sin no more. So all I'm appealing for is that we receive what God has said about whatever the sin is. And then we'll move forward accordingly. Some years ago, I heard about a 14-year-old boy brought up on the mission field. His parents, missionaries, they purchased a computer without supervision. Um, he ventured into the adult world online, which isn't hard. And in time, is found um, caught in a nest of sexual sin. The parents have to leave the mission field, brought up in a Christian home. They prayed over that boy. They, they dedicated him to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that happens because of seductive images in the mind and the power of the media, and it permeates every area of our life. So Paul says, let that not be named among you. And we're not bashing technology. We're just saying that we need to look at our hearts, and we need to put up um, proper boundaries. He mentions impurity. The word includes the sexual sin's name, but it probably extends to more defiling behavior. The Ephesians could have easily connected with what Paul is saying here. And they could have said, hey, Paul, we're living in Ephesus. There's no way. The standards you're speaking of, there's no way anyone can live that way in Ephesus. And often people think that way now. But we're Christians. We're followers of Jesus Christ. God has not been unclear on how we're to live. Any impurity, covetousness, and greed, he mentions. He, he mentions obscene talk. Um, in verse 
6, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them for at one time you were darkness, now you're, you are light in the Lord. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So he mentions um, obscene talking. Verse 4 is actually the verse I wanted to underscore. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Obscenity, referring to indecent or improper actions. Guard your hearts and minds. An obscene person is one who hates standards. And they vomit out whatever they are inclined to say with no filter or sense of propriety or respect. They live in a world where anything goes and they just blurt it out. That that should not be named among us. Foolish talking. The Greek word is moria and logos together. And one one who talks like a fool. The issue here is not intelligence or IQ, it's morals and holiness. So virtually this applies to all all comedy today, doesn't it, in one form? Coarse joking or jesting. John's thought says all three, filthiness, foolish talking, and crude joking refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. Friends, I'm preaching to our hearts today. God longs for our hearts to be pure in Christ. This is contrary to our new nature in Christ. These behaviors are out of bounds for the believer. Devastating deception because such a life reveals one who will not, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. Those who do these things... They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, if this is the prevailing behavior of your heart and life, what it indicates is that you're not a true believer. And you're not saved. Therefore, you have no inheritance in in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You don't get in. So, that's the negative. The positive is... We're to live in such a way that we expose the darkness with the light of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Why? By your your godly life, by your witness, by your example. Not by seeing how close you can get to the curve, but living a distinct life, a holy life. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What's the answer to that? None. Awake, O sleeper, he says in verse 14, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I think really at the heart of living for the Lord in our generation, it begins with a longing for that. A desire for that. A priority that is above anything else we're committed to. If that's not there, then we're just playing games. He says in verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And I thought this is such an appropriate text for today because so many are dozing in their Christian life. He's talking to believers here. Awake, woe to us if we sleep under these warnings in this call 
And so we're to expose the unfruitful works of darkness by not following in that example. Notice, so we're, we're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, we're to walk in wisdom. Verses 15 and 17. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Christ is our wisdom. We look to his word for everything that we face in this world. Making the best use of our time. Think about that. We're called to redeem the time for the glory of God because why? The days are what? Evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, there is a scene that we should think about from time to time, and that is one day you and I will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of our life. And that should motivate us to godly living. Why did you, and to hear him say, why did you give your soul to that? Why did you give your time to that? Look at all of these years given to, to what has no eternal value at all. It's a loss. Now, your response to that is not to say, well, I'm a believer, I'm going to heaven, what difference does it make? That's, <laughs> that's assuming something the Bible says is not true, namely that we give an account for our life. And here Paul is saying, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Redeeming the time of your life for the glory of Christ. That's a little too intense for me, preach. That's what we're talking about. Intensity. We're talking about what really matters in a thousand years and beyond. So, walk in wisdom. How would that play out in your life and mine? I would think today there ought to be some realignments of priorities in our life. Where you've noticed slippage, you're coming clean and you're acknowledging that to the Lord. Lord, I'm not, I'm not walking in wisdom. I'm giving my heart and life to these things that are frivolous and empty. And I need to get in tune with you. I need to walk in wisdom. I need to redeem my youth years. I need to redeem my family time. Christ is our wisdom. Make the best use of the time. Now, I want to mention one other journey. Walk in the Spirit. Look at verses 8, 18 through 21. Walking in the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine. That seems a bit arbitrary, but it's not. The, the Ephesians would have known what that is. Pagans got, that's how they worshipped. They got drunk. Don't get drunk with wine. That's how the pagans worship. And he mentions it's debauchery. That's, the word is asodia. It means a hopeless and curable sickness. That should not be named among you either. But be filled with the Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit. We're to be filled with the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. The Spirit of God dwells within you. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always to everything. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Reverence of Christ. So this is a major transition in the book of Ephesians. 
as we look at the, this command to be filled with the Spirit. And this is the power that helps us to walk in love and walk in light and walk in wisdom is we need to walk in the Spirit who lives within us. This is a sign of the new covenant. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you to guide you, to bring things to light, to help you understand, to give you power to live the Christian life. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ within you, you don't belong to Him, Romans 8, 9 tells us. To be filled with the Spirit means to be carried along by the Spirit, moment by moment being carried along through this life by the Spirit. This gives new beginnings all the time for us. Lord, I'm not in the Spirit and I know it. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be guided by the Spirit. My being filled with the Spirit yesterday has no bearing on my being filled with the Spirit right now. This is a present uh, command. It's passive in that it's done to us. The Spirit of God guides us as we yield to Him and surrender to Him. But this is the power we need. And how do we know that we're living a Spirit-filled life? This seems so... You know, incomprehensible. How, how do we know we're living a spirit-filled life? Well, he tells us in the text, you have joy. You're singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You have joy in your life. You have joy in the Lord. You're not ashamed that he's your savior. In fact, you're quite overjoyed that he would redeem you. And you're walking with him in joyful fellowship. It describes a deep fellowship with God. How do I know I'm being uh, led and filled with the Spirit? I have joy. I have deep fellowship with God. I have a heart of gratitude. Notice what he says here, that in verse 20, giving thanks always for everything. I'm a thankful person. I'm a grateful person. And not only that, in verse 21, I'm a submissive person. Submitting to one another out of a fear of reverence for Christ. Doesn't that really help us to apply this? I pray so to be submissive. We don't want our lives to be explained without the Holy Spirit. We don't want our church to be explained without, the Lord did it, (laughs) without the Holy Spirit. I want to live in such a way that I'm desperate for Him to come through, and may it be so in our lives. Now, through that teaching, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom, walking in the Spirit, it just, it leads us to this section on marriage where God is wanting to speak clearly to us timeless principles that affect marriage, family, the definition of marriage, sexuality, gender. God speaks through His Word. Not in a garbled mess, but in clear communication. And so thirdly, we're called to embrace God's design for marriage. As believers, we look to the Word so the Word of God is the authority for our life, and we should be very familiar and focused on the ministry of the Holy Spirit because as we look at marriage, that's the power for marriage. We had, have celebrations all the time around here uh, uh, on marriage wedding anniversaries. We always clap uh, when they're recognized because that is worth celebrating. We want to honor marriage. Marriage is warfare. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. It's warfare. 
the number one strategy of the evil one is to destroy your marriage. And here we, we, we see clear, uh, a clear word on what marriage is. And he, he begins with wives in verse 22. Um, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I would say you would need the Spirit's help to do that, wouldn't you? And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I would think you need the, the Spirit's help to do that, wouldn't you? This is the, the gospel-centered, gospel-powered family. Through the Spirit of God, men, husband, wife, coming together under the Lordship of Christ. And so as we look at this clear command, marriage is, is a call to love supernaturally. Yes, there's a mutual submission in any relationship, verse 21, a deference and sacrificial desire to meet another's needs. And, and this is the, the theological foundation for marriage. But God has called wives to submit to their husbands, which is a frightening prospect in a culture that's growing in abuse and perversion. But nevertheless, is the foundation that God gives here to submit to their husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and his body and is himself its savior and so there's this beautiful picture every time we come together for a wedding that the relationship between that man and that woman is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. No woman will have trouble submitting to a man who loves like that. But we don't always do, we men. All the more reason to come back to the power that helps us to do that. So in talking about the husband's duties towards his wife, Paul uses five verbs drawn from Christ's action towards his bride. Notice this in verse 25. Christ loved the church. He died for the church. We're recipients of that love, that sacrificial love. Christ gave himself up for the church, verse 25. He surrendered himself up for the church. And this is the way husbands should love their wives. Christ is cleansing his church through the word, verse 26. Verse 27, Christ will present the church as a radiant bride without blemish. So the greatest demonstration of Christ's love for the church was his dying for her. But in this passage, we see really a definition of marriage. In verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where do we, where do we read that? In the book of Genesis in the creation account. When God brought Adam and Eve together in that first marriage ceremony. So while Paul does not define marriage, he basically assumes they know what it is because marriage was the first great institution established in creation between a man and a woman. It's the first institution between human beings that God created. So if you believe that the Bible is more than a discombobulated collection of stories but rather a coherent, authoritative, inspired, God-breathed book, it becomes clear to you 
as you begin from the early pages that marriage was a major development in the beginning of this world. So in Genesis 1, God created all things and then it was announced that it's good. It was only after God created man, but before he created woman that he found fault and declared it's not good for man to be alone and brought them together in marriage, which was meant to be for a lifetime. So any diversion from that created order is, a, is an aberration, is a, a sinful departure. I mean, if you look at all the examples of um, polygamy in the Bible, does it go well? <laughs> it does not go well. You look at Jacob's madhouse of, of relationship, it does not go well. It's a departure from the crea- creative design where culture leads in those ways. Marriage is the institution from which all other institutions emerge. And so as we look at these truths in the coming days, as we define marriage as God defines it in his word. But before we leave this morning, I wanna look at one other aspect of this text and it's in chapter six. We touched on it last week when we looked at the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise which Paul picks up and repeats. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's worth reading again, kids, don't you think? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, we live in a world of of clauses and uh, clarifications, I know they abound, but let's just let this rest with weight and speak to every child here that this is pleasing, this is right in the sight of God, that you obey your father and your mother and that we would have a culture in this church of obeying and respecting authority. Christian families are to live out family life and the power of the Holy Spirit. So kids, in the same way as you, your dad needs the Holy Spirit to love your wife or to love your mother as, as, as he needs to, you need the Holy Spirit to respond in obedience to them. So maybe the fact that you're not obedient to them or you're not respectful to them or the fact that you may dishonor them, maybe you could say, all right, Pastor Jim, maybe that's why I need a savior. And that would be exactly right. That's exactly right. That's how the gospel impacts your relationship with your parents. Because maybe you're hearing this command, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And you're thinking that my heart's nowhere near that. That's only a sign that you need Jesus Christ. And if, if this message has hit you in a difficult spot where you have rough road in your marriage, it's only a reminder that you need God's power in the gospel to forgive and to hope and to love and to obey and to walk in love and light and wisdom and in the spirit, all a reminder that we need the Lord to get to the finish line with joy, which by the way, is what is communicated in Hebrews 12, isn't it? 
where we're called to run the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, lest you lose heart. I want us to see that it's the gospel that gives the power to live this way. It's God's word that defines that we're to live this way. We're to say no to the cultural offerings of this day and say things like, I'm sorry, but what you're saying to me doesn't line up with his word and I reject it out of hand. I'm standing on the authority of scripture. So all these things give order and peace. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we come to the close of the service, it really is a, a call to respond in obedience and faith. The call of the gospel really means displacing you as the center of your life. That doesn't sound inviting, but it means you get to be a part of something bigger and better than your own autobiography. Through the gospel, we're invited into God's story of redemption, which is bigger and better than any empire you could ever build in this world. If you're in Christ, your identity is not found deep within yourself. Your identity in Christ is not found in who you think you are, but outside of yourself and the person of Jesus himself. And he calls us to come to him by faith, to find our meaning and purpose in him, to die to ourself and to follow him. And maybe that's where you are right now. Would you call out to him in faith? Oh Lord, come into my life. Fill me. Bring your sin and your failure to him and he will hear you. He will receive you. Maybe the Lord has um, comforted you, I pray, by his promises here and a call for all of us to say with regard to family life, it's the gospel that holds us together. It's the grace of Christ that holds us together. It's the hope he gives that guides us. And so it is, Lord, we look to you in these closing moments to finish with joy, the joy that you give. In Jesus' name, amen.